during this day of practice, you have undertaken an activity which is unusual for human beings, which is to sit still. To sit still for long periods of time. Usually our bodies and our minds are in constant motion. We all have bodies, and those bodies aren't 100% comfortable. Somehow we have bought into this myth that our bodies should be 100% comfortable 100% of the time. And if they aren't, then something's wrong. So the mind thinks that our bodies should be 100% comfortable 100% of the time. And if they aren't, then the mind gets upset. Either upset with us, something's wrong with us, or something's wrong out here. But when the mind gets upset and gets distressed, it only makes the situation worse, the situation in the body worse. You may have been wondering as you sat here for these, this day, these hours, why, why did I decide to do this? <laughs> why would I want to practice? And that's actually a good question to continue to ask. So I've been practicing for over 30 years, and I ask that question. It helps keep practice fresh. Why am I doing this? Why am I not living another life? Why would I give hours of my, my week, my day, my week, my life, over to this practice? What is the purpose of Zen practice? You could say that we're all practicing because we're environmental activists. Social activists and environmental activists. Unusual types of social activists and environmental activists. Well, the first aspect of the environment that we are working to improve is the environment that our body functions in. I think everybody's aware that anxiety is not good for your body's health. The stress creates muscle tension, and when there's tightness in the muscles, then there's decreased circulation, decreased oxygen and glucose nutrients flowing to the muscles, and then the muscles start complaining, and that complaining is interpreted by us as pain. When we meditate, then, our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate goes down, the level of circulating stress hormones go down, we take in more oxygen, we excrete more carbon dioxide. And meditation has been studied quite extensively in the medical field in the last 30 years. And there are many, many articles now documenting that meditation is good medicine for many bodily ills. In fact, it's so good for so many different illnesses, ranging from migraines to psoriasis, to skin disease psoriasis, to immune dysfunction, to chronic pain, that either it's a sham Either it's like patent medicine, you know, it's good for everything that ails you. Or meditation represents some kind of essential nutrient 
for human beings. That we've somehow stopped taking in, absorbing in our very fast-paced modern lives. It's like forgetting to drink water or forgetting to take calcium. Everything starts to go off. I think that's the actual explanation. Because in medicine we get very suspicious of anything that, no matter how you apply it, it seems to improve people's condition of body and mind. But it really does seem to work that way. So the way I think of it is that we used to naturally meditate for hundreds of thousands of years as human beings evolved. When we know that animals meditate, some people use their cats as actually models of meditation. <laughs> models of serene relaxation. And if we think of uh, the natural life that human beings live for a long time, there were plenty of opportunities to meditate. If you were moving very quietly through the forest and then sitting for a long time at a watering hole waiting for an elephant to come or a giraffe to come, trying to blend in with the forest or the jungle so your presence as a human being wasn't noticed by these animals. That's clearly a kind of meditation. Well, the other examples are sitting and watching a fire. We all know that watching a campfire we get very relaxed. That's why everybody loves fires, fireplaces. Many other examples, looking at the stars at night, lying on the ground, looking up, watching the clouds during the day. Our lives have been become so boxed in that we don't even see the stars anymore or the clouds. We're so busy running from one thing to another. So this essential ingredient, ingredient this essential nutrient in our life is missing. The second reason to practice is to improve the condition of the mind. So that might seem odd. Why would slowing down the mind, emptying the mind, improve the condition of the mind? But when the mind is thinking, 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 thinking all the time, it's like a motor that's never turned off. Eventually we run out of gas, we run out of energy. The mind seems to believe that its function in our life is to think. And if it's not thinking all the time, then it's failing. It's failing us. And of course, the mind thinks that if we're in trouble, then it should think more to help get us out of trouble. And the mind also believes that it should warn us of all possible troubles that might be coming our way, all possible dangers. So it's constantly looking around, alert to 
disaster that might be approaching. Unfortunately, that means that the mind is always focused on the negative. The mind is magnetically attracted to the negative. It doesn't worry about the positive. Why would you worry about the positive? Positive is just okay, right? You can leave that alone. But the negative is what we have to worry about. So the mind is always focused on the negative, on our mistakes in the past. You notice how the mind's always going to problems in the past, trying to rearrange and solve them. On, and on possible disasters in the future. What could go wrong? And on disease and on pain. So everybody laughed when Hogan said something about, well, if your leg falls asleep, it's not going to get gangrene and fall off. We laugh because that's a laugh of recognition, because our mind is worried that that could happen. Hmm? So the mind thinks it's doing its job for us and protecting us by focusing on the negative in the past and all the potential negatives in the future. Reading the newspaper, which is mostly negative information, things to worry about taking that all in and thinking about it. But just as it's not a healthy environment for the body to function in when we're anxious, when we bathe something in anxiety, it doesn't thrive. Whether it's a plant or a child or a pet or our own body, when we bathe it in anxiety, it can't thrive. So the same thing is true when we create that kind of environment for our mind, for our mind and our heart. We talk about those together. When they're bathed in negative thoughts and emotions, that's not a healthy environment. And in fact, the mind functions much better if the mind is going to help us solve problems. problems that happened in the past or that could happen in the future. The mind does much better at solving problems if we think about them for a little while, as objectively as we can, put them aside, and then open our mind to what we call awareness, the awareness function of the mind. And that's how insights happen. So there are these two basic functions of the mind. There's the thinking function, and there's the awareness function. In meditation, we discover that the mind is stuck in the thinking function. I was t- talking to the, to the group this afternoon and saying that we could say that it's like radio station K-R-A-Z-Y, or television station K-R-A-Z-Y. On a television, that always turns itself on. We have to learn to turn it down, at least turn it down, and eventually we can learn to turn it off for periods of time. Because this is not a healthy environment to have a bizarre television station playing in our house, this house of body and mind, all the time. Constantly beaming negative thoughts to us. So it's unusual for us 
in our ordinary life to shift to pure awareness, to shift out of thinking to pure awareness. In fact, it's so unusual that we call it a peak moment. And we remember those moments as unique, as special. When we were really alive, when we showed up for our life, when we were really present for our life. So to be healthy in our mind, in our heart, we need to learn to turn down the thinking function and turn up the awareness function of the mind. We will do much better with the things that we're worried about if we're able to dissolve the mind's confusion and anxiety. Anxiety doesn't produce clarity. Anxiety produces confusion. We all know when we meet a person, if we're anxious, we don't even see them. Somehow there's a distortion of our vision. We don't even look at them, look directly into their eyes. There's something between us and them. So if we can dissolve the mind's confusion and anxiety, then we can really see and really hear. Our intuition functions fully. And then what comes forward we can respond to with a clear and bright and alert mind and an open, undefended heart. In fact, when you read about all great discoveries or all turning points in great people's lives, they happened in just this way. They were thinking about a problem, chewing on it for a while, and then they let it go and they rested in awareness. And in that time of awareness, when the mind was open, open to all possibilities, that's freedom. When we're thinking in our usual patterns, our habitual patterns, when we're caught up in judgment or criticism, in good or bad, as our chants say, our chants say good or bad, that doesn't mean that there isn't good or bad in the world, that there isn't wholesome or unwholesome in the world, but it means that when our mind is constantly dividing things up, then we're dividing possibilities. We're eliminating at least half of the possibilities. And that's not freedom. So let's say we have a problem, we chew on it for a while and is in as objective a way as we can. This is very scientific. Hmm? Then we let it go and we just rest in awareness. And then insight emerges out of that clear mind. So as I was mentioning to the, to the group this afternoon, Newton is thinking, 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 thinking about forces in the world, and then he lies down under an apple tree, and an apple falls, and he realizes, ah, gravity, there's the force of gravity. And that discovery leads to more pondering. Now people are wondering, why is gravity so weak? So they, Lisa Randall at Harvard ponders, why is gravity so weak, relatively so weak? So thinking, pondering, pondering, and then, boom, here comes an insight. When the mind is at rest, ah. Maybe it's this way. 
or Archimedes is relaxing in a warm bath and he gets in and he sees the water goes up, he has an insight about displacement and mass. Or Einstein is pondering time, space, relativity. How does this work? Pondering, 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 doing the mind's work and then letting the mind stop and rest. And he sees a train. There it is. Or Mother Teresa is wondering what to do with her life. What is her life's essential purpose? And she's riding a train and idly looking out the window and suddenly the poorest of the poor. To help the poorest of the poor. That, that phrase comes whole into her heart-mind. And her life is galvanizing out of that. Thousands of people's of lives are thousands of people's lives are changed. Hundreds of thousands of people's lives are changed. So for the sake of the healthy functioning of our heart and our mind, we have to learn to let them relax. This relaxing is not something foreign. So as Hogan said last night, it's the easiest thing to do and it's the most difficult thing to do. We're not creating something new. We're opening up, reopening something that is already ours, that's already present. We knew it as babies. When we lay in our beds and we were just aware, without any commentary because we didn't have words. We were just aware. We were aware of breathing and touch and warmth and coolness and colors and forms and tastes and smells and sounds. Just aware, completely content and at ease, just aware. Discomfort comes, we cry, then discomfort passes and we're content again. But then as we go along in life, lots of things, complications happen. It covers this all up. The biggest complication being that we learn to talk and then we learn to think. And it's not that we're going to unlearn to think, stop thinking. Of course not. The mind is a, human mind is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. But when it never rests, it becomes mentally ill. You know, all the experiments where they deprive people of sleep. In about 72 hours with no sleep, you become quite bizarre. You start exhibiting the symptoms of mental illness. That's our poor mind. That's what we're doing to our poor mind. It doesn't rest at night. As we know, it's dreaming and churning, churning worries up trying still to find solutions and trying to signal us through dreams about what some solutions might be or through even more vivid through nightmares. Nightmares are really good because it's the unconscious mind trying to signal us in such a strong way that we can't ignore it, give us some important information, clues for our life. But that means that our mind is not resting at night. But it can rest in meditation. It can learn to rest in meditation. 
When it does, it's like a flower opening up. Our natural beauty, our natural perfume, the perfume of our life are revealed. We need to learn to relax our minds by resting in the present moment, in what's happening in the present moment without any judgment about it. It is what it is. And when we flow with it, moment by moment, then our minds can stretch out and relax into the infinite space and time of this very place and this only time. And then our natural wisdom and our natural kindness, loving kindness, emerges. It isn't something that we have to put on from the outside or that we learn in classes. Or we watch a movie about Mother Teresa and say, oh, I should be more compassionate. That doesn't work from the outside. It has to come from the inside in just this way. So we practice to improve the condition of our bodies and to improve the condition of our hearts and minds. And when they're functioning better, then we suffer less. That's what all the medical studies on meditation show. That we suffer less when we meditate. So people with chronic pain don't get rid of the chronic pain, but their relationship to it is changed. It is altered. The pain itself, the perception of the pain itself is altered. And at times it does go away, but then it comes back because of impermanence. But our relationship to this body and the body's discomforts is changed. And we suffer less. When we suffer less, then we have greater equanimity. And we have greater happiness. When we have greater equanimity and greater happiness and we're settled into being who we are, then our energy begins to flow outward instead of being all tied up with our own problems and issues. It begins to naturally flow outwards. And we have the energy and clarity to work with the problems of those around us and the problems of our world. Another reason to practice is to improve the environment around us. As I said, when the mind is thinking and all tied up with our own issues, we're not so aware of other beings. We all have the experience of setting out in a car and driving from home to work, thinking, 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 all the way there, completely unaware of the other cars, of all the other beings that we've passed, the trees, the rocks, the people, the animals. We're numb to them. We're often some imaginary past or future. And we're absent from the very place where our life is, where we are truly alive. But then sometimes we stop our busy lives and we go out into the vastness of nature. Like here, you take a walk into the woods. 
Or you go out onto the, into the meadow and you look at the sky and the river. And the mind expands out of its tiny little human box of worries. In a city, we're just surrounded by all these little boxes of human worries. So it's such a relief to step out of that and go out into nature. The mind relaxes and we become aware of all of the other creatures whose lives are deeply intertwined with our own. We hear the frogs calling. We hear different frogs calling. We hear the sandhill cranes above us on their way to eastern Oregon. in the garden, we take in the vibrant green of the grass or the weeds that we're pulling up, or the kale that we're eating, the kale in our bowl, so alive. We feel the softness of the bananas in our mouth, and those little tiny seeds in those tart, sweet strawberries. And we realize how much life has been sacrificed just to keep us alive this one day. When our energy turns outwards, we begin to see our place in a huge interconnected web. And then our natural, our innate feelings of gratitude and appreciation emerge. We're touched by the awareness of how precious each being, each life, each existence is. We don't get this from reading about it or talking about it or even hearing me talk about it. We feel it from within. It is only when we feel it within that we are changed. And this is another reason to practice, to change, to be transformed. It's an odd kind of transformation because we're turning into ourselves. You could say we're turning our small self, inside out, into our huge self, our boundless self, with a capital S. Our boundless, centerless self. So this is a reason to practice, to change ourselves, to become, in a way, our environment. Our environment is waiting. All beings are waiting for us to quit being so self-centered so tiny, imprisoning ourselves in such a tiny box of self. The whole of creation is waiting for us to break those bonds and turn our awareness outward and join with their awareness.
When we are changed, everyone and everything around us is changed. This is the ultimate form of social action, to change ourselves. It's like a nuclear chain reaction. Starts so small, or dropping a seed crystal into a supersaturated solution. Such a small thing, but it, as transformation spreads out and affects everything. We were talking at the breakfast table this last week about the fact that, particularly in America, people are obsessed with the delusion of fame and importance. And we think that, well, we don't, we're not willing to change unless it's a big change. We're not willing to do something unless it makes a huge impact on the world. It's obvious. You know, we get written up in the newspaper, then we know that we did something good. People recognize what we've done. But really it comes down to, are we willing to, to change a little bit? Just a little. Are we willing to do something if it only changes the world a little bit? Are we willing to vote? A lot of people in this country aren't willing to vote. Because it seems trivial. It's not. Are we willing to hold off on one moment of anger and not express it in words or in action? Seems like such a small thing, but it's not. Because when we move, it sets into motion a chain of cause and effect that goes on forever, unless it's interrupted, and it's up to us to interrupt it. We're the only ones who can do that, who cannot pass suffering on, who can use the tools of practice not to pass suffering on. Stop it here. Even just for one moment, in one instant, in one interaction. It's not small. But even if it is small, are we willing to do, to be humble and do small things? To change in small ways, bit by bit, year after year. That's what our practice is. Because when we are a little more at peace, then the whole world is a little more at peace. When we are a little more serene, then there's a little more serenity in the world. When we are a little less angry, then there's a little less anger in the world. When we are a little more wise, then there's a little more wisdom in the world. Don't discount that little bit. It's always such an honor to be in these retreats with people who have the courage to come and practice, especially for the first time. Not only are you entering the unknown territory of monastic life, but you're 
entering the unknown territory of yourself, of your true self. You have to find this out for yourself, but I can tell you after more than 30 years of practice, there's no adventure like it. You've now stepped onto the path of this most wonderful practice, which has been handed down to us over thousands of years. It works. It really works. It's difficult. It's wonderful. It works. And there's no journey like it. The journey in and then the journey out. Thank you.